Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor <clears throat> every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, <clears throat> remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. <clears throat> and he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that, they, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No. Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. I'd like to speak to you today, as the Lord wills, on this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And I just confess to you that I've sort of put off speaking on this because I don't feel worthy or adequate to speak on the subject of hell. It seems to me that uh, it's a subject that ought to be spoken on only with the utmost purity and zeal and compassion and reality and urgency that is imaginable, really. And if we're honest, uh, most of the time hell isn't very real to us. Uh, we, we believe if somebody denies hell, we would fight for the truth of that. And we believe with our minds that uh, it is real, but we very seldom have much of a glimpse or reality of hell. But I just want to remind you here uh, before we even begin, who it is that's speaking. The one that is speaking is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he taught uh, repeatedly about hell. The most holy and pure person who ever lived. The most compassionate person who ever lived. The friend, Jesus, the friend of sinners. It won't do any good. It won't do you any good in eternity that Jesus is the friend of sinners. That won't do any good then. 
uh, because it's the one who is the friend of sinners, the compassionate one, the holy and pure one who is teaching here about hell. I need to put that thing on, okay. Lord willing, we're going to get a speaker in that room eventually. But... <clears throat> So I just remind you again, we're not just reading a storybook, we're reading the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one, not some fundamentalist preacher or a liberal preacher for that matter, nobody, no one except the person of the Lord Jesus himself saying these very words, the things that I've just read came from his mouth and uh, he's the one that we can trust we can trust what he has to say and what he has to say about hell is something that we need to take as God's truth um, some of you know about Bertrand Russell he was a philosopher of a, of a previous generation and uh, Bertrand Russell, <clears throat> there's a book up at the college, uh, Why I Am Not a Christian. It was one of the essays that he wrote, along with other things. Uh, here, this uh, supposedly brilliant philosopher. And uh, if uh, the Lord directs in that way, sometime it would probably strengthen your faith. If you're a Christian, it would strengthen your faith to read Bertrand Russell, this great philosopher, to read why he was not a Christian. It's incredible how shallow and empty his arguments were for why he wasn't a Christian. You remember the, this article? One of the things, one of the reasons that he is not a Christian, he said the Lord Jesus, or well, he said Jesus Christ taught eternal punishment. That's the reason I'm not a Christian. He taught eternal punishment. Now I will say this: he, Bertrand Russell, was honest enough to realize that Jesus taught eternal punishment. We have men today that are noted, quote, evangelicals like John Stott. They're in England denying eternal punishment, saying, believing in annihilation. But uh, Bertrand Russell at least realized this, that the Lord Jesus Christ taught eternal punishment, and that was sufficient for him to not be a Christian. Uh, you can solve that thing just by asking a question. Who would you rather listen to concerning heaven and hell? A condemned criminal, atheist, Bertrand Russell, or the divine, holy, pure, spotless, eternal Son of God? That solves that issue. Who, who, whose opinion would you rather take? And Jesus said, I came down from heaven, and I'm speaking the things which I have seen and heard with my father and so uh, Jesus taught repeatedly about hell someone I think I've read that he taught more about hell than any other person in the New Testament I'm not sure if that's accurate or not but I just want to go back a little bit just to refresh you on this now uh, these verses are almost taken at random and I could have gathered a whole lot more actually I just I just sat and thumbed through uh, Matthew and got some other verses that I had written down. 
But uh, just look at this in the teaching. I don't think we realize how prominent this is in the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, just keep your place here in Luke 16, and we'll just, <clears throat> just uh, look at some verses. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22, the end of the verse, he says, Whoever shall say, You fool shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. So here he talks about hell, and he calls it the hell of fire. In uh, Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There is destruction ahead. There's either life or destruction ahead. And he calls this destruction the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. Aren't these amazing words? Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And verse 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Now you realize the one teaching us about hell is the one who's going to send men into hell. Wes and I were talking yesterday, this idea of, you know, these pictures of a, of a little devil with a horns and a tail and a pitchfork poking men in, into hell. That's not it. The hell is prepared for the devil and his angels. And Christ will send them into hell, and he will also send men into hell. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so the one teaching on this in Luke 16 is the one who will one day pass this sentence of judgment upon men. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then in chapter 13, verse 40 and 42. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be. This will happen, Jesus said. This is what we're reading here. Is very in, in a very short time, this is going to take place, just like he's saying here. So shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom. We're talking about professing Christians. We're talking about people sitting in here today. He'll gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then in uh, verse 48, you remember, the kingdom of heaven is like this great net. And again, we're talking about professing Christendom, people who have felt themselves carried along by the gospel call. Right now today, in some measure, you are caught in this net. You're being pulled along by the net. That doesn't mean you're a good fish. That's going to be determined at the end, and God's going to sort out 
the uh, good and the bad and the good are going to be gathered into containers, but the bad are thrown away. Verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So again, weeping, gnashing of teeth, depart from me, furnace of fire, over and over in his teachings. In uh, chapter 16, and again I say these are almost, you could almost say that these are taken at random. You just search around, you spend a little time, you'll find it a lot more than this in the teachings of the Lord. Chapter 16, verse 26, What will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now you see he's talking about losing your soul. That's what hell's about. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds, not according to his words or his profession. And then chapter 18, verses 8 and 9. If your foot... If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you violently. Doesn't just say cut it off even. He says cut it off and throw it from you. Get that thing out of your life if it's causing you to stumble. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame. In other words, so what if people say you're a social misfit? Better to go to heaven that way than to go to hell and be a big swinger. Better to enter into life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the hell of fire. So, here again, chapter 22. <clears throat> Verses 12 and 13. This king, again, so many of these parables, uh, they just, he, he doesn't even really hardly deal with the what we call the world at all. He deals with professing Christians. And here again, uh, this man that came to the wedding feast without a garment on. And uh, verse 11, when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes, and he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here? How did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Now this is pretty rough on a you know, wedding guest. It's pretty rough treatment for a wedding guest that doesn't have the right clothes on. The king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, chapter 23, very next chapter, verse 33. He's talking to the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, over and over down through here. And then verse 33 says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, religious people, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? And then 
Next chapter, chapter 24, verse 48 to 51. If that evil slave, now this again, professing Christian, says in his heart, My master's not coming for a long time, and shall begin to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour which he does not know, just like that, and shall cut him in pieces. Now these are Jesus' words. Just take a sword and hack that guy to pieces. That's what's going to happen. That's what God's going to do to the hypocrites. Shall cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there and the gnashing of teeth. He said that a lot, didn't he? Chapter 25, verse 29. To everyone who has shall more be given. He shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <clears throat> Chapter 25, verse 41. Then he will say, or will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick. You see what he does not say here, depart ye cursed ones, for you never, quote, accepted me. He doesn't say that. You never went forward in a meeting. You never said that you were a believer. He doesn't say that. He says, I was hungry and you didn't do anything. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You did not invite me in naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. In other words, you live for your own selfish life. That's the problem. They will answer, they themselves also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not care for you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Well, we could go on and on. That's just one gospel. Let me just give you one verse out of Mark and one out of John. And we've got one that we're looking at today out of Luke. Now, of course, there's a whole lot more than this. But uh, it may well be that Jesus taught on hell more than any other person in the New Testament. Mark chapter 9, verse 43 to 48. Uh, this is similar and parallel to the one <clears throat> in Matthew, but he says it in verse 43, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, and this adds a little bit, into the unquenchable fire. Unquenchable fire. No, no water, no fire extinguisher that could ever put it out. It's unquenchable. 
And if your foot gets you, God sustains that fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This worm doesn't die. Now, we realize these are all figures of speech. They point to, but here's the thing. You say, well, that's figurative. Well, yeah, it points to a greater reality. It doesn't point to a lesser reality. It points to a greater reality. A worm, I mean, here's somebody being uh, cast into this uh, refuse heap outside the city where the fire is always burning and the worms eat them up but the worm never dies it keeps on forever those are the pictures that the lord jesus chose john 15 verse 6 every branch that does not bear fruit every branch in me that does not bear fruit is cast out is withered men gather them up and cast them into the fire and they're burned so i say Hell is real, beloved. We just, we've got to wake up to the fact. We've got to wake up to the fact, by the grace of God, that there are many sitting right here today, if their lives ended right now, they'd be, they'd enter into this hell Jesus is talking about. It's not something to sleep through. It's not something to just float along. Well, with that introduction, <clears throat> let's look a little bit then at this parable. The first question is, what's the setting of the parable? And we've seen this over and over, how important this is for a proper understanding of the parables. And the setting of this parable in Luke 16 is another parable. We've already looked at it. It's the parable of the shrewd steward or what's been often called the parable of the unrighteous steward. But really the thing we need to remember about him is not his unrighteousness, but his shrewdness. That's the point. Jesus uh, praises him for his shrewdness. And you remember what that was? Uh, now let's just look at it. Verse 8. His master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of the unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? <clears throat> in other words, and we, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but we saw we all have a stewardship entrusted to us of the material things of this world. And we are soon going to be put out of our stewardship. We're going to have to give up everything that we would tempted to say that's mine you know that's my car and that's my 
Bill Fold, and that's my money and all that. All of that, we're going to have to give it all up. We're going to be put out of our stewardship. It's not ours. We're going to have to give it up. And Jesus said, you make sure that you use that money now so that whenever you're put out of your stewardship, there are going to be some friends on the other side to receive you into everlasting habitations. In other words, use that money in such a way that it advances the kingdom of God. And instead of living as if this life were all that there is, live in light of the fact that you're going to soon be put out of this stewardship and this body and every talent you have, really everything you have, you're going to have to give up. Use the things that you have now in light of eternity so that when uh, it fails, you'll be received into the everlasting dwelling. So that's the setting. Now, here's the amazing thing. Verse 14, he finishes this parable and this is amazing. Verse 14, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at him. Isn't that amazing? They listened to the Lord Jesus telling these parables, and uh, they scoffed. And he said to them, verse 15, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. <clears throat> but God knows your hearts. <clears throat> For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in, in the sight of God. Now, what was highly esteemed? Well, part of it was their riches. These Pharisees were lovers of money, and they thought that since they were uh, so pleasing to God, that was why they were so rich. And they were highly esteemed in the eyes of men, both for their riches and for their outward show of righteousness. And so the Lord uh, rebukes them, and then he goes on in verse 19 to tell this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now that's the setting. The rich, there was a certain rich man and there was a certain poor man. In other words, he's speaking this thing directly to these religious men who are lovers of money and full of pride. And uh, so he goes on to tell this story of the rich man and Lazarus, a certain rich man and a certain poor man. This whole parable is a study in contrast. A contrast in life between the rich man and the poor man the contrast in death, and the contrast in eternity. And that's what I just want to look at briefly here and try to sum up some of the things that we learned. First of all, <clears throat> the contrast in their lives. Verse 19, There was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. This man was what you would call filthy rich. Uh, he was filthy in it. He lived in extravagance. It says that he dressed in purple and fine linen. The purple came from a certain uh, a dye that came from a certain shellfish, and it was extremely expensive. And so the only people that wore purple normally were kings. And so the color of royalty was purple. <clears throat> 
This man dressed in purple all the time, and he wore these fine linen undergarments. So it was extravagant, very expensive. And even more than that, it says that he lived in this splendor. He lived in splendor every day. He fared sumptuously. He had these extravagant meals and uh, lived in extravagance, splendor every day. Um, it reminds me of a story about Cleopatra. I don't know if some of you may know if this is true or not, but she snatched off a pearl one time that was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars and dissolved it in a glass of vinegar and drank it. Just, uh, just to show, I mean, think of what that one pearl, what the good that that could have done even for someone like Lazarus. But just to show her contempt and her uh, riches. That's the way this guy was. I, uh, my father-in-law was telling me about uh, he's been with some men that would order especially large steak at a restaurant so that they could just throw away 90% of it. You know, just buy it. You don't really want that. You don't. Re not even really that hungry. You just buy it especially big just to show that you've got enough money. You don't even have to eat that steak. You just throw it in the trash. That's the way this guy was. <clears throat> It says that he lived in a mansion, basically, because the word for gate here in verse 20, Lazarus was laid at his gate, is the word for the city gates or the gates of a palace. So he lived in a mansion up there in luxury. Now contrast, and we're talking about the contrast in their lives. Contrast Lazarus, verse 20 and 21. A certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores. First thing we learn about him is he couldn't walk. He was laid at his gate. So somebody had to carry him there and put him down there. This man was totally unable to provide for even his own needs. Well, isn't it a contrast? What a contrast. Not just a poor man out working hard. He could not even work. All he could do was lay there and beg because he couldn't walk. Not only that, but it says that he was sick. He had sores. Not only that, he was covered with sores. Pleasant looking sight, <clears throat> dressed in rags and covered with sores, with no doctor. And he was very hungry. Verse 21, he was longing to be fed with the crumbs or the scraps which were falling from the rich man's table. I mean, he... That guy threw away stuff that would have meant so much to him. That's happening all the time nowadays. Stuff is thrown into the trash and the garbage that would have meant so much to someone. <clears throat> he was hungry. He was longing. And it doesn't say he ever got any of those scraps. It just said he was longing to have those scraps. Besides... Even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now, what a contrast. <clears throat> this guy's dressed in purple and fine linen. Lazarus is dressed in rags. This guy's living in a mansion. Lazarus is laying out by his gate. This guy's healthy. Lazarus is full of sores. This guy's eating extravagant food every day. Lazarus is hungry. 
just to have the scraps. This guy, if he's ever sick, he's got the best doctor's money can buy. Lazarus has got dogs to lick his sores. And uh, you can imagine, it's not even nice, clean dogs. Uh, when we were in Romania, that place is a habitation of every unclean and hateful dog. I mean, there are dogs roaming the streets at night of every shape and size. And during the daytime, they sleep. And in the parking lots, they're just underfoot laying around these mangy, dirty, pitiful dogs. That's the dogs. They'd come around and lick Lazarus's sores. Not because they felt sorry for him either. That's what he had for doctor. The contrast in life. Now, there's one contrast I forgot about. There's one more contrast. Lazarus loved and trusted God. He loved and trusted God. We see that from what happened after he died. In fact, the name Lazarus, now some people think this, they say this isn't a parable because Lazarus has a name. No other, no other time when Jesus gave a parable did he name somebody. But actually, the name Lazarus uh, comes from Eliezer, and it means help of God, or help of God. God is my help, in other words, or God helps me. He needed God's help uh, in every way, and he looked to him as his helper. God has chosen many times this is the case. God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith, and that's the way it was here. Now here is a mystery. Here's a man with God as his helper who is completely destitute and covered with sores. Yet God is his helper. Why didn't he help him out of that? Why didn't he do something? He's being carried there full of sores every day and there he is laying there on his mat or whatever and his heart is going up in prayers to God, to Jehovah. He is a true child of Abraham. Isn't this amazing? And people that would walk by him would want to spit on him. But he is a true child of Abraham. Now here's the guy up here. And you know who the rich guy is? He's the Pharisees. He is out. We can be sure this guy was outwardly religious. Just like they were. He put on a big show of outward religion. But he did not love God. And he had all kinds of riches heaped upon him. How in the world can this be? Now... <clears throat> Doesn't this lay the axe to the root of this so-called prosperity teaching? If you please God, if you've got faith, God will give you hundreds of thousands of dollars and you'll have this and you'll have that and you know, you'll have your Rolls Royce and everything if you just please God. That is not the way it is. Concerning the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, tormented, and afflicted, of whom the world was not worthy. That's very often the case. And see, these Pharisees, they were into the prosperity teaching. They thought in their minds, because they were so well off, well, you know why it is, because they're just like Abraham. God blessed them because they were so righteous. And they had all this money because they were so righteous. Jesus said, you justify yourselves in the eyes of men. God knows your hearts. Your hearts are detestable. And the things that are highly esteemed among men 
which is the way they looked on the outside and all their riches and everything were detestable in the sight of God. Well, uh, Psalm 73 really goes into this, doesn't it? The psalmist, he says he looked around, his feet almost slipped because he saw these wicked men with their eyes bulging and all kinds of riches. And he said he, he was starting to get weak in his faith. And what happened? He says, I went into the sanctuary and I considered their end. Now, that's the rest of the parable, isn't it? I considered their end. And uh, then he was able to get victory in his heart about it. Well, uh, by contrast with Lazarus, this rich man did not trust or love God. He loved himself. And he lived for himself. Now, notice... The man, he did not go to hell because he was rich. And Lazarus did not go to heaven because he was poor. There's a lot of poor people going to be in hell. In fact, the vast majority of them. And there's a lot of rich people going to be in hell. But it's not because uh, he was rich that he went to hell, and it was not because Lazarus was poor that he went to heaven. The rich man went to hell because he lived for himself. Now, question. Do you live for yourself? You may not be rich, but you can do the same thing this guy did. Just live for yourself. That's all he did. He just lived for himself and enjoyed himself. And that's why he went to hell. He did not love God supremely, and he did not love his fellow man. He just lived for himself. And that's all you've got to do to end up in hell. This rich man did exactly the opposite of this parable that Jesus told about the shrewd steward. He lived for the present and didn't care anything about the future or winning, making friends with the mammon of unrighteousness. You realize what it could have happened? He could have taken his money out there and used it on Lazarus and Lazarus would have been waiting there with open arms to receive him into the eternal dwellings. That's what this parable before was about. You see that? He did the exact opposite of that. So Jesus gives this parable to show to these Pharisees, part of it is, to show to these Pharisees not to trust in that fact that they're well-to-do and not to trust in their outward righteousness, but to realize Again, they've got to care for the souls of men. Clear back Luke 15, same thing. All that about the prodigal son, you know, they didn't care about the souls of men. All right, the contrast in their life. Secondly, the contrast in their death. Look at verse 22. It came about that the poor man died. His misery was over. And he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, notice it does not say the poor man died and was buried. It does say that about the rich man. But it doesn't say that about Lazarus. It just said he died. And the reason I got this book out, I want to read a quote from Campbell Morgan. He says, almost inevitably... The cleaners, that is the people that went through the city cleaning up, the cleaners passed the dead body, unknown, unclean, and hurried it away in the early dawn until they came to Tophet Gehenna, 
the rubbish and refuse heap of fire, where they flung the body in. That is a known fact of the time, and the very fact we are not told Lazarus was buried leads us to suppose such an end for him. So very likely, now isn't this quite a thought? Very likely Lazarus dies out there, and they somebody passes by and say that old wretched beggar finally died, and they pick him up and throw him on the cart and throw him out there in Gehenna, the place of burning. And his body suffers the fate that, that the rich man's soul is going to undergo in reality. Lazarus's body is burnt out there in Gehenna. But as soon as they die, the rich man's soul goes to Gehenna. The real fire. That's just a picture. That's a faint picture out there outside the city of what the real thing is. So, <clears throat> Lazarus is, he dies. And he's not, very likely not buried. He's just thrown out there on the rubbish pile. <clears throat> but here's an amazing thing. The real Lazarus is carried by angels up into heaven. I mean, the body's out there burning, but the real Lazarus, he, it says he was carried by angels into heaven. So here this guy, as soon as he dies, angels are on the scene to take him and escort him and take him personally to heaven. He's carried. Now, before this time, he's been carried because his body doesn't work. He's been carried and laid out there to beg. Now he's being carried by angels. His soul is being carried by angels up to heaven. But the rich man, <clears throat> what a contrast here. Now, notice this. It says in the second half of verse 22, the rich man also died. That's one thing we got to... That's certain. Everybody's going to die. Everybody here today is going to die. You will face death. I will face death. There's a time we think it's way off somewhere, you know, way down there at the dark, so far away that it's not even real. No, it's very real. And we're going to die. And one of the two things is going to happen. Now, this rich man died, and he was buried. And you can be sure that there was everything money could buy at this funeral. I mean, they had professional mourners back then. They'd pay for a bunch of people to wail and bemoan the fact that he had died. And uh, all kinds of fancy, you know, these gold-covered uh, caskets and all that uh, to make a nice show outwardly. Uh, not going to mean anything. See, here, all of this stuff surrounding the body. His body got a whole lot better treatment than Lazarus's did when he died. Doesn't amount to anything. And so he's buried. But notice what isn't said about him. It doesn't say one word about angels coming and taking him. The angels didn't come and take him to Abraham's bosom. It says he also died and was buried, period. Verse 23, and in Hades, or hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. Now, the contrast in eternity. Contrast in life, contrast in death, contrast in eternity. <clears throat> Lazarus is where? He's in Abraham's bosom, reclining. And I think the picture here, of course, Abraham, this is a Jewish 
really Jesus puts us in a Jewish setting, which there was no thought at this point where he could talk to them about going and being with the Lord, being with him. But he talks about going to Abraham's bosom, the idea of being received into the number of the faithful. And uh, Father Abraham is there, and everybody's reclining at this great feast. So here the rich man who starved all his life is having a great feast. I mean, the poor man who starved all his life is having a great feast. By contrast, the rich man, he is longing even for a drop of water. Exact opposite. Total contrast. He had laid up riches on earth, but he was not rich toward God. It's something how much Luke brings out the Lord's teaching on riches. That comes up over and over in Luke. And clear on into the book of Acts, you remember. Same thing. As many as had houses and lands, sold them, laid it at the apostles' feet. There's a lot in Luke about uh, this matter of riches. But here's the rich man then, uh, now in eternity, a greater pauper than Lazarus ever was. Notice this about hell. It is a place of torment. That's the word Jesus uses, verse 23, being in torment. And it is a place of agony. The word torment is used more than once, verse 25. Come to this place of torment. And agony. <clears throat> Verse 24, I am in agony in this flame. And verse 25, you're in the verse, you're in agony. A place of torment, a place of agony, a place of flame. Now, <clears throat> Jesus, you saw how many times in the teaching of the Lord he talks about the fire. We need to take it seriously. Not necessarily a literal fire. We're not talking about that. But we're saying what, what is being said. Jesus is saying to us, this is, this is the closest thing I can talk about to give you an idea. Flame. I am in agony in this flame. Now, in other places, he talks about darkness. How can you have darkness and flame at the same time? Well, spiritually, you can. You can have darkness and flame at the same time. It's a place of torment, it's a place of agony, it's a place of flame. It's a place of remembrance. Verse 25, Abraham said, child, remember. Remember, and that's what he was remembering. He knew who Lazarus was, and he remembered. <clears throat> that's part of what makes hell hell, isn't it? Remembering. Remember, remember what so-and-so told you. Remember that verse from the Bible, such and such, that you were totally careless about, scoffing about, or ignored, or hardened yourself to? Remember what the, what the things that you said that came from your own mouth that you went back on. Remember. What else about hell? Well, two things. First of all, it's completely just, verse 25. We won't spend a lot of time on that, but it, basically the answer Abraham gives him, child, this is ju justice is being done. And secondly, not only is it just, but it's permanent, verse 26. Besides all this, even if it weren't just, but between us and you there's a great chasm fixed. I mean, even if something could be done, this thing is permanent. It can't, nothing can be done. Now, you know... Uh, 
there's two ways of looking at the word eternal, eternal punishment. And we, one way is you try to think of time, you know, going on and on, and that's terrible enough. But th this is a different way here. He says it's fixed. That's just another way of saying eternal. Hell is fixed. That is just the end to it. Imagine what you are now just set in concrete forever. If you don't love God, and your heart is off in sin, that just, you know, that when the end comes, that's fixed. That's not going to change. Amazing word here in Revelation 22, right at the end, he says, Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And let the one who is filthy still be filthy. You're filthy. The day comes when that's it. Your filthiness is set in concrete forever. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. That's hell. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Well, forever as you are. What, what a thing. Uh, for, for this sentence to come to any lost person, that just God to say to you, okay, you're, you've chosen, now you're going to be forever the way you are now. Incredible. Well, verse 24, he cries out, and he cries for mercy, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, prayed to the wrong person from the wrong place, and uh, was not answered, or got a negative answer. Verse 27, he said, I beg you, Father, that you send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. He said, No. Now, he's still arguing. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And I don't know why he was concerned for his brothers. Uh, I'm not sure. The Lord introduced this. I'm, I, I believe this. The Lord introduced this aspect of it specifically for these Pharisees. They're the five brothers out here see, that are still alive. And <clears throat> the argument is, if Lazarus rose from the dead, if he went back there, they'd listen to him. Now, this, this is something, isn't it? A guy named Lazarus, not this Lazarus, but another Lazarus, a friend of Martha and Mary, was raised from the dead just a little bit after this. What did they do? What did the Pharisees do? Did they believe and all say, you know, when they saw Lazarus raised from the dead, they didn't deny it. They said, this is a notable miracle. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. They, they acknowledged that it happened. What did they, what did they do? Did they repent and believe? What did they want to do? Let's kill him. Isn't that something? Let's kill him. And so, and ultimately, the Lord Jesus himself rose from the dead. It does not have, don't you dare try to hold before God that you don't have enough evidence, that he hadn't given you enough, that there's some excuse and some reason why you ought to continue in sin and not believe on him. That is an utter lie. Somebody said it like this. He said, if a copy of the Old Testament in your hand 
and Lazarus laying there at your gate is not sufficient to move you to compassion, you're not going to be moved to compassion though somebody rose from the dead. He had the Old Testament there. This man had the Old Testament in his hand all through his life, Moses and the prophets, and all those things about compassion and loving your neighbor and all of that, and having compassion on the poor, and that was not sufficient. And here's Lazarus laying out here, and that was not sufficient to make him even take notice of him. It's not going to do any good if somebody rises from the dead and came and preached to him. And by the way, how do you think it would have been received with this rich man's five brothers if that dirty, sore-covered beggar Lazarus came back to him and said, by the way, your brother's in hell now, and he's sent, I've been sent to warn you. I'm in heaven, and your brother's in hell. You know, they would have liked that, wouldn't they? They wouldn't have believed, though Lazarus went back from the dead. Well, what are we to gather from all this? First of all, you cannot serve God and mammon. It's impossible. You've got it. You can only. There's only room for one God in your life. Second thing, the choices of this life do determine what's going to happen in the life to come. What you live here now is not. It's not going to suddenly be different then, and it's going to be based on reality, not on talk. And so. The choices of this life have eternal consequence. There's no second chance. It's a fixed thing. Personality continues beyond the grave. Heaven and hell are real. And particularly, the Lord gives this lesson to the Pharisees who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, viewed others with contempt, and they were lovers of money. And... Uh, he tells them that it's very different than the way they've got it in their minds. The reality is very different. And that that beggar that they're despising and maybe walked by on the way to the temple may be right with God while they're going to end up in hell. And he directs them to the scriptures. Not to even, even to miracles. He directs them to the scriptures and said just obey what the Moses that you're so proud of, obey what he said to do, and you'll end up in Abraham's bosom. Well, amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would forgive us for being so hard in our hearts about this matter of hell and so unbelieving. And uh, we thank you for all these clear words of the Lord Jesus, the, the one who was the friend of sinners, who warned about the darkness and the gnashing of weeping and the gnashing of teeth and being bound up with cords and thrown out, being told to depart, being cast into a furnace of fire, and we don't know what all these pictures mean, but Lord, we know that they are unspeakably terrible. And uh, we just, we pray, help us to, to uh, realize the truth of these words and to uh, flee from the wrath to come.
into uh, as the, this parable teaches here today to use our all for you and your glory and for the good of our fellow men and to have our eye on eternity we pray these things in Jesus name Amen <laughs>